right, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me online. As you've no doubt heard by now, we decided to suspend in-person gatherings for this Sunday uh, and push everything online. And the reason for that is because somebody on our team was exposed to somebody who's tested positive for COVID. And we thought through this about a thousand different ways, and we just decided uh, the, the safest and smartest thing uh, would just be to go ahead and push everything online and uh, hopefully, Lord willing, be able to gather back in person seven days from now. When we, Back in October, when we made the, uh, the move from outdoor services back to in-person indoor services, we talked about how seriously we take your health and your safety. And uh, So I'm hoping that this decision proves to you exactly how much we meant that. With all that being said, I want to welcome you to Jonah uh, week four. Uh, if you've been following along in the Jonah series, uh, so far, the story's kind of gone like this. So, so God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. <clears throat> Jonah runs. Uh, God sends a storm to reclaim him. Uh, and then Jonah gets thrown into that storm, into the Mediterranean, and he's swallowed by a fish. And, and really, the, the question that, that all of this raises is, is basically, what's the point? I mean, what's, what's very clear is that God is obviously not done with Jonah. There's something that he wants to develop in Jonah. There, there's some... Uh, lesson that he wants to teach Jonah, and it, it's sort of the, the question is, is really boiling to the surface. What is all of this been about? And the answer to that is found uh, in the passage that we're going to look at today. I want to read Jonah chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. It says this, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is God's word. Um, I mentioned that, that this passage is really answering the question, what is the point of all of this been? And, and the point is crystal clear. Uh, this is all about grace. Uh, all of Jonah's inner turmoil, uh, his, his, his anger and his bitterness and the ugliness inside of him and all of the outward brokenness that that's led to, be it you know, racial prejudice or toxic nationalism or this sort of Pharisaic religiosity that he's been known for up to this point, all of this, all of that has been tied to his blindness to the reality of God's grace. And what happens in this passage is maybe for the first time in Jonah's life he really gets it and he starts to realize what grace is all about. And we know that because of what Jonah says at the conclusion of his prayer here uh, in verses 8 and 9. He says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And then verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. And, and literally the way this passage reads, exactly after that, right after that, this fish releases him. 
which is meant to show us that everything that, that, that God had led Jonah through up to this point in his life, all of it was about getting him to this point, to this realization that people who cling to idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs and that salvation ultimately comes from the Lord. At that point, he was released because at that point, he could be released. Now, one of the major themes of Jonah is that it, it, when, when you're looking at Jonah, you're dealing with somebody who, who, this is a prophet of God who receives direct revelation from God who is utterly in the dark about the grace of God. That's, that, that's the, the central character in the book of Jonah. And so if, if it's true that Jonah, given his resume, given his direct access to God, could be so blind to grace to the point that it was distorting his whole life, I think it would be utter foolishness for you and I to not consider that the same thing at least might be going on in our lives right now. And what this four-chapter story of Jonah really shows us, start to finish, is that Jonah's most severe problems had little, if anything, to do with what was going on around him, with what was happening externally to him. And really, all of Jonah's uh, most severe problems were all directly tied to his failure to understand the true depths and the true meaning and the true beauty of the grace of God. And, And so that brings me to sort of uh, if you want to call it the thesis to this teaching and the idea that, that undergirds everything that we're going to talk about today, here it is. We're not any different than Jonah. That, that our problems, our most severe problems, are, are primarily tied to our failure to understand the true depths and the true meaning and the true beauty of the grace of God. That we might have, our, our, our most severe problems might have a lot of other secondary causes, but the primary cause just like Jonah, is that we fail to understand the true meaning of God's grace. And until we get it, and this is what the life of Jonah is showing us, is that until we get it the way that Jonah had to get it, we're going to be just like Jonah. We're going to be filled with a lot of inner turmoil that leads to a lot of outer brokenness, and we're going to be an absolute shadow and shell of what we could otherwise be. But when we get it, when that light begins to go on, it'll transform us in ways that, that we wouldn't even believe. A couple of years ago, me and my family went to, um, this is the greatest vacation of my life, and, and it's not even close. Uh, we went to Disney World. And I, hand to God, I loved that vacation. I loved Disney World so much more than my kids did. And the reason for that is not because my kids did not love Disney World. They did. I'm just telling you, it is impossible for them to love Disney World as much as I did. For me, uh, as an adult in my 30s, that was a, it was a week-long tidal wave of serotonin. And I, I still remember it like it was yesterday, that we, you know, you, you drive into the park, uh, and everybody's so nice, and, uh, and you get your bags checked, and then you get on the train, and, and we went to the Magic Kingdom was the first park that, that, that we explored. Uh, and so after you get off the train, and you get in there, uh, you, you find yourself sort of like, it, it sort of feels like you're in an, in, uh, an old kind of like city or or town, you're you're walking down this row and everybody's happy and the weather's perfect and there's songs and, uh, and then you look in the distance and you can see, you know, the, the, uh, the Disney world, the famous Disney world castle. And at that point I was already gone. I was just absolutely in heaven. And, uh, my wife, Katie was sort of our tour guide. She planned everything out. She did such an amazing job. The first place she took us was basically, we, we walked in and we went up and to the right uh, to the first ride with the kids, which was the, the Winnie the Pooh ride. And I just, I remember looking around, and I was absolutely mesmerized. I had just never seen anything like that before. Um, but of course, what I didn't realize at the time was that where I was standing and, and what I had seen really represented just a microscopic part of that park as a whole. And, uh, you know, throughout the day, as we explored the Magic Kingdom, 
uh, it, I started to get a sense of how big this place was and how much there was to offer. And, you know, there were all these different wings and each wing had a different theme. Uh, and of course, that was just that one park. You know, throughout the week, you know, I, we got to go to the, the Epcot Center. We went to um, the Animal Kingdom. We went to Hollywood Studios and, and each park was, it was the same way. Each park has all these different wings and it was like everything that I saw was better than what I'd seen before. And every time I turned a corner, uh, something else completely took my breath away. And, and, and me and Katie were talking about that vacation uh, when we left that behind. We actually frequently talk about that vacation. And, uh, and the conclusion that we both came to, looking back, is I'm confident that I had, I don't think I saw, I actually know I did not see 10% of all that Disney World had to offer. Uh, but the reason I tell that story is that God's grace is exactly like that. That no matter what you think you've seen, it is always so much greater and it's so much more amazing and it's so much more breathtaking than you thought it was when you got started. And every time you see it from a different angle, every time you see another aspect of it, uh, it just it transforms you all over again. Now, obviously, the most profound change that takes place in, in a person's life is, is the moment we first Get a handle on it. Yeah, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. There's this beautiful line in that hymn that says, How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And that's describing the moment in a person's life when they, they first got a handle on the reality that, that God, their creator, has enough grace for them. Uh, Paul sort of talks about that in, in a letter known as Colossians. In, in Colossians 1 Verses 5 and 6, Paul talks about how the gospel bore fruit in you since the day that you heard it and understood God's grace. What that means, biblically speaking, is that the day that you understand God's grace for you, the moment that you understand God's grace for you, that is the moment that you cross over this line and you become what the Bible refers to as a Christian instead of just a a morally upright, sort of religious, nice do-gooder. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, most of us understand that. One thing I, I just don't think we talk enough about is the reality that grace is not just what gets you into the kingdom of God. Grace is, is really what gets you all through the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's exactly why Paul goes on to say in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that it's also God's grace, that, that literally God's grace is our instructor, our tutor. God's grace teaches us both to deny godlessness and to live and pursue and grow in a life that honors God. And so grace not only gets you uh, through the door or, or, or into a relationship with God, God's grace will continually transform you over and over again as you grow in it and you understand it more deeply and you grasp more of it. And of course, everything that I've said so far leads us to just one monumentally important question, and that's, have you grasped it? Have you really grasped God's grace for you? And again, based on what we see in the life of Jonah, if it's possible that somebody with a resume like Jonah, somebody who uh, was a prophet of God that had direct access to direct revelation from God, if he was missing it, I think there's a good chance that you're missing it, just like I think there's a good chance that I'm missing it. So what I want to do today is look at Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I just want to ask this passage three questions. Number one, and these three questions are going to serve as our three sort of road marks uh, uh, today, our, our, our three main ideas today. Number one, we're, we're going to ask, what is grace? And I hope to show you that it's, it's maybe more beautiful than you've ever thought before in your life. Number two, I want to ask, how do you receive grace? And thirdly, and finally, how do you know that you have it? 
So with all of that in mind, this brings us to our first idea during our time together. Number one, what is grace? The Hebrew word that is most commonly translated grace in the Old Testament is a word that literally means favor. Now, in the English language, when we talk about doing someone a favor, we're talking very narrowly and specifically about an action. Uh, But the biblical concept of favor is far deeper. Biblically speaking, to find favor with somebody, it means essentially to be let into a place that you have no right to be in. And, and, and And it always comes with a specifically relational uh, connotation. Uh, if, if you're wondering sort of what that means, there's a, there's a beautiful picture of exactly what this looks like in Genesis chapter 33, where we see Jacob coming back to confront his brother Esau. Now, if you know anything about the life of Jacob, you know that Jacob, for all of his life, was this kind of conniving, um, deceptive, manipulative weasel, for lack of a better term. And uh, he had betrayed his family He had basically stolen his brother Esau's life from him. He wronged him deeply. And so Esau had been angry at Jacob for for years, justifiably so. But when Jacob confronts him in, in Genesis chapter 33, what he says is essentially is, let me find favor with you. And what he's what he's saying there when he says that, he's saying, Esau, I know that I've given you good reason to cut me out of your life forever, maybe even worse. But what he's saying there is, I know that I don't deserve a relationship with you. And I know that you are under absolutely no obligation to give me a relationship with you. But I'm asking you to let me in anyway. That's what favor is. That's what, that's what really grace is. So if you had to define grace when, when we come across it in Scripture, grace at bottom is it, it's, it's favor given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. The essence of grace, grace is all about being let in relationally, though you, though you don't deserve it by a person who's not obligated to let you in. So what I want to do is just uh, t- take our time kind of walking through both of these aspects of grace. First, I want to talk about uh, the aspect of being let in. Uh, and then secondly, the, the, uh, the, the idea of being let in despite the fact that you don't deserve it. So first off, uh, being let in. In, uh, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah says, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Uh, What Jonah is saying here is, he's saying, I was far away from you, God. I was totally unable to return to you in and of my own power, God, and yet you brought me up. You let me in. And so when we talk about God extending grace, God's grace is about him letting you all the way into to his heart, all the way into his home, all the way into his family, really all the way into himself. And the reason that, you know, it's funny, Christian or not, whatever you believe, or even if you would say you don't believe anything, everybody loves the idea of grace. Nobody has too much grace. Nobody's offended at somebody showing them grace. Grace is a great thing. And the reason that grace strikes a chord so deeply in the human heart, the reason that grace needs, the reason that grace uh, meets needs for us that really nothing like the gospel of grace can meet is because part of, of what it means to be human, part of the design of the human heart is that at, at the bottom of who we are, we need to be let in. We have a desire that we did not choose to have to be received. I mean, that's fundamentally, it's what makes uh, rejection such a painful thing. 
Um, I, I think it's universal to the human condition, and I'll kind of walk through this after I say it. I, I think it's universal to the human condition to say that we all have an inner ring that we want to be a part of. Uh, and and it's, it's, uh, I was just thinking about it this week as I was putting this together. Uh, wherever humans are, nobody needs to teach us to do this, but wherever humans congregate, those inner rings get formed. It's just something that we do sort of all, automatically. You can see this in, in companies. You know, the inner ring is the partners. Uh, you can see this in high schools. You know, the, the inner ring is the cool kids. You can see this in the world of academia. This is the, the, you know, the tenured thought leaders. You can see this in Hollywood. This is the A-list celebrities. You see this kind of thing in, in families. You even see it in churches. It's just people form those wherever people are. And so the, the inner ring is, is it's the group of significant people. It's the group of people who really count. It's the, it's the gatekeepers, that if you can get them uh, to like you, if you can get them to welcome you, if you can get them to accept you, then, then you know, you, you've made it. You've arrived. You know, I, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the movie Goodfellas. If you haven't watched it, I'm not recommending that you watch it. But uh, Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas, uh, there's this scene where he's about to get made. He's going to become a made man. And if memory serves... Uh, you know, not everybody could be a made man. I think you had to be able to trace your lineage all the way back to the old country and, and be like a full-blooded Sicilian or something like that. Uh, but but it was such an it was the highest honor you could receive to be a made man because once that happened, you were untouchable. Once that happened, you were in the inner ring. You you I mean you had you had arrived. You were working to get there your whole life. Once you get there, you'd finally arrived. And I don't care how secure a person claims to be. Because by our design, we are, we are relational, uh, uh, emotional, social creatures. Every single one of us desperately wants to be let in. And most of us, if we got honest, would say that we spend most of our lives feeling like we've been left out. And so this idea of, of being you know, welcomed and accepted and embraced by the most important people, that meets, I mean, that's a fundamental desire of the human heart. C.S. Lewis, who I find myself quoting every week now, um, talked about this in an essay that he wrote, and I really like the way that he put it. He was kind of speculating about the real motivation behind a person's drive for success, and here's, here's what he had to say. He said, I don't believe the economic motive and the erotic motive account for everything that goes on in the world. What he's basically saying there is, I don't think everything's about money and sex, and I think he was right. <clears throat> he says, it's a lust, a longing to be inside, which takes many forms. You want the delicious knowledge that just we four or five, we are the people who really know. And and then he said this, as long as you're governed by that desire, you'll never be satisfied. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. Now, in that context, what the gospel does is it it comes to people, and, and on the one hand, what the gospel says to, to people who have never felt like, like insiders, to people who felt like they've been left out in the cold their whole life, they've never been welcomed, they've never been embraced, and their life has been ruined because of that. But on the other hand, uh, what the gospel also says, even to people who have been welcomed into the inner ring, only to find that their life is just as unfulfilled inside as it was outside when they were trying to get in, the gospel shows you and I that the real reason that we're still restless the real reason that we desire that so much is because we fail to understand that the ones that we really want to receive us are really just a picture of, of, the, of the, the only one who really ultimately counts, and that's our creator. Because you know, the fact of the matter is no matter whose approval or whose acceptance we get, 
uh, it, it's only going to leave us unsatisfied because the only, ones, the only one whose acceptance and approval that can really heal us and can really meet our needs in a way our heart requires is, is that of God. And so the beauty of grace is that even though we can't get in by our efforts, we can be let in purely through the free grace offered to us by Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life and died the perfect death in your place for your sins. And so what the gospel allows us to say, the gospel allows you to say that I have been, I've been welcomed into the only inner ring that matters. And I have been let all the way into a relationship with the only one whose love can really heal me and really make me whole. So, so first, grace is about being let in. But remember, that's just one side of it. We said that it's, it's about being let in relationally, but the other side of this, it's about being uh, let in, even though you don't deserve it, by a person who's not obligated to let you in. Now, to, to kind of give a picture of what pure grace looks like, I, I think it's helpful. Let me just throw three examples out here. So first and foremost, say you're, you're an employee, you're an employer, and you've hired some people to work for you. At the end of two weeks, you pay them. Obviously, that's not grace. On the one hand, they've worked for you, so they deserve payment. Uh, on the other hand, you're obligated by law to pay them. And so that's not an example of grace. All right, but, but let's say you, know, you, you were in a small group in the fall semester, and your small group leader did an amazing job, opened up her home uh, to you, opened up her life to you, uh, was always there for you, prayed for you, made you feel like you didn't have to go through anything you were going through alone. At the end of that semester... She tells the group, hey, I got a lot of things going on. I'm going to take a break for a little while. And so everybody in the group gets together uh, and they decide, let's take her out for dinner. Uh, Even that really is not an example of of pure grace. Because even though nobody in the group was required to do that, uh, that small group leader deserved it because of the way that she loved and, and cared for everybody in her group. So let's use a third example here. Let's say you have a neighbor that makes your life miserable. I'm sure there's some people that can relate to that on the other side of the screen right now. Uh, Let's say you have a neighbor who is constantly playing his music way too loud all hours of the night. And when you ask him to turn it down, he turns it up. Uh, And then when you have people over your house, he calls the cops on you. (laughs) All right? Let's say that that individual who has gone out of his way to make your life more difficult then gets sick to the point that he's unable to care for himself. So in response to that, uh, you clean his house for him, and you cut his grass for him, and you pick up his groceries for him, and you drop, drop off meals for him, and maybe you even cover some of his bills for him. That's what grace looks like. Everybody, myself included, we all love the idea of grace until it, <laughs> it's our turn to demonstrate it to somebody else, but there is absolutely nothing in the universe that can so powerfully change a human heart is pure grace. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Jonah's story, specifically in verses 4 and 7. Jonah, he says in verse 4, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. When Jonah says that he's been banished, uh, that, that's, it's so significant because he's using the same Hebrew word that's used to describe what God did to Adam and Eve when he kicked them out of the garden for rebelling against his will for their life. And so 
here in verse 4, Jonah knows full well. He's not coming at this sideways in, in, in any way. Jonah, Jonah knows full well that he is in the condition that he's in purely because of decisions that he's made. He has decided to run out on God. He has decided to rebel against God. It's because of his poor life choices. And so that means he knew that he was undeserving of an audience with God, and he knew that God was unobligated uh, to grant him an audience. But then he says in verse 4, Yet when I looked to you, and when I remembered you, my prayer rose to you. You still heard me. This word yet, I think, is, is probably the most significant word in verse 4 because yet, mean, yet means there is no correlation between what came before that word and what comes after that word. And so Jonah is saying, I was in the condition that I found myself in. And this is an absolute literal and metaphorical rock bottom for Jonah. This is Jonah saying, I was in the condition that I was in because of decisions that I made. And yet through no work, no achievement, no merit of my own, it's not the end of the story for me. And I, I'm just, I'm just going to put it out there. Only grace allows you and I to say that. Grace puts an, puts an and yet in the heart of the recipient of grace. An and yet in the life of a person who has really grasped the meaning of God's grace. Uh, grace allows us to say that I've made a mess of my life. You know, I, I have relapsed. Uh, I have uh, done things that I swore I would never do. I have hurt the people who counted on me the most. I have failed as a parent. I've failed as a spouse. I've failed as a person. I haven't lived up to other people's expectations of me. I haven't even lived up to my expectations of me. Grace allows us to say that even though all of that is true, you are still received by God, not because of what's in your heart, but because of what's in his Grace, the, the, the doctrine of grace biblically is that there is no human being so good that they don't need grace or so bad that they can't receive grace. And so in that regard, grace is, is uh, it's the ultimate leveler. Grace levels the playing field for all mankind and it saves you and I from, from maybe, maybe this term resonates with you, but what grace does as we grow in it is it, is it delivers us from manic depressiveness. You know, because grace will pull you up out of the valley of despair, but it'll also pull you down from the heights of arrogance. And so to people who feel like they've done a pretty good job in life, it says you still need grace because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But to people who know how badly they have failed, it says you can still receive grace and it does not depend in any way, shape, or form on what you have to offer God, on your achievements, on your performance in the least. And, and when you and I begin to truly understand grace, what, what, what develops in us is we, we're no longer afraid to face what it is we see when we look in the mirror, to, fa to face ourselves. Um, a, a person whose conscience, whose psyche, whose, whose self-image has been framed by grace has a psychological strength to look at themselves realistically. And people who have not experienced grace cannot do that. I know that's a bold thing to say, but the reason I can say that is because the default function of the human heart, it's a phrase I use all the time anymore, the default function of the human heart, every single person you interact with goes through life this way. You and I, in our natural state, go through life this way. Humans, on, on autopilot, every one of us bases our self-image on our performance. 
And what that means uh, is that when we do good, we feel good because we are good. What that also means, the other side of that, is that when we do bad, we feel bad because we are bad. But as long as you and I continue to go through life basing our self-image, basing our identity on performance, what will happen is we will never be able to admit what we've done. We'll never be able to admit who we've hurt. We'll never be able to admit how we failed. Because if you're going through life basing your self-image on your performance, then to admit that you have failed is to destroy your own self-image. But when somebody understands grace, that though I was completely undeserving of it, and though God was completely unobligated to give it to me, that he has let me all the way in to a relationship with himself, and he slammed the door behind me. I'm not on probation. He's never going to change his mind about me. I am fully loved. I am fully received. I am fully valued. I am fully seen at bottom, yet loved to the top. When that happens, when we grow in that realization, what happens is we can begin to truly see ourselves and see all of the areas of our lives that still to this day, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, still need to change. And that is where real growth and real transformation takes place. So the question we've been asking is what is grace? Grace is favor given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace is about being let in relationally, though you don't deserve it, by a person who is not obligated to let you in. Now, that was the first idea, and I wanted to spend the most time on that, really defining what grace is. The next question this raises, I mean, when you understand how amazing grace actually is, the next question is going to be our, our, our next idea during our time together. Number two, how do you receive grace? And the short answer to that question, I mean, obviously grace is not something that you can earn, but the short answer to this question is that you have to see uh, the depths of your sin and the height of God's mercy. Now, at the risk of painting in too broad a strokes here, I, I think it's appropriate to say that you can lump people into three basic categories. And when I'm done you know, walking through this, see, see if you don't find this to be the case. First off, you have people that have too, too low a view of their sin. Right? These are people who, 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 who go through life saying, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Um, people with this mindset obviously don't like to hear about sin. They don't like to hear about punishment. They don't like to hear about judgment. Uh, they certainly don't like to think about God as a God of wrath. Those sorts of ideas sound uh, you know, rigid. They sound ridiculous. They sound archaic. Maybe they even sound dangerous. Right? These are the people who go through life saying, yeah, of course I'm not a perfect person, but I'm certainly better than, you know, fill in the blank. Those kinds of people will never grasp God's grace because very simply, uh, they don't believe that they need it. You know, they're, they're like a person who is in poverty but are convinced that they're rich and so they're, they're going to remain in poverty all of their life. They have too low a view of their sin. Right? On the opposite end of the spectrum, though, though not really as, as I want to kind of show here, you have people who have too low a view, not of their sin, but of God's mercy. All right, these are people who, who know that they've failed. They remind themselves often of how much they failed. They just can't believe that God's love is actually powerful enough to clean up the mess that they've made of, the, of their lives and of their selves. What's kind of ironic is that, that people with this mindset um, are, are like people who have too low a view of their sin. These people go through life also driven by a very subtle and a very difficult to deal with form of pride because their mindset is one that says, I shouldn't need grace. I shouldn't have failed in all the ways that I've failed. I'm better than this. Uh, I shouldn't be where I am. And so because they're, they're actually locked into 
you know, a works-based way of living, still defining their, themselves, their identity, their self-image on their achievements, their performance, they're never going to be able to grasp God's grace either. Right? But then you have a third category of people who not only grasp their sin, uh, but also the height of God's love. And, and these are people that the Bible refers to as Christians. And in this passage, what we're seeing is Jonah reminding himself and growing in an understanding of both of these things. And it's the more deeply that he understand the depths of his sin and the height of God's love that he, he began to grow. And it's really how all of us grow. So let me, let me walk through this. In verse 8, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. If, if you and I are going to see the depths of our sin, what, what this verse is showing us is it's not enough to just say, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm bad. I've, I, you know, I haven't lived up. I got it. So what am I supposed to do about it? Uh, that's far too general. And the truth is, I haven't met somebody who just feels sinful in general. Uh, I, I've, I've talked with people who feel sinful, who feel like they failed to measure up in very specific, very pointed ways. And, and so what we, need to, what we need to do in our own lives and what verse 8 is, is, is really demonstrating for us is that you and I need to see the particular idols, meaning the particular things in our lives that are more important to us than God that, that we look to to what only God can give us. Because according to this verse, it's those idols that are keeping the grace of God. They're, they're causing us to forfeit the grace of God, meaning they're keeping us from experiencing the life-changing power of God's grace in our lives. All right, so, so let me just give a couple of examples about this. I, I, I heard a pastor say, this made a lot of sense to me, that, that the most important idol for you and I to always be identifying and always be smashing because it has this tendency to continually come back is self-righteousness. Right, and now, now all self-righteousness is, is it's moving through life believing that God is obligated to me, believing that God owes me. And there's probably no clear evidence that somebody has not truly grasped God's grace than a sense of entitlement that says God owes me anything other than punishment. But as long as you and I go through life believing that, that God is obligated to me in some way, shape, or form, we're never going to experience God's grace and we're going to wonder why we never have a sense of his power or his presence. Uh, now, along with that, and certainly an idol can be any good thing in life that we kind of turn into a God thing. You know, your career, money, your reputation, Fill in the blank. I feel like we talk about that all the time here. But one thing that I, I, I don't mention a lot uh, as far as idols go is that an idol can also be what you could, you could call a pet sin in your life. Uh, what a pet sin is, is it's, it's any behavior that you know violates the heart of God that you continually go back to, almost like it's medication. Uh, that's a, a behavior that um, you, know, kinda, you, you look to to pick you up, uh, to, to, you know, to thrill you, to make your life exciting. Um, anything that you look to sort of as an escape from the stresses and the pressures of your day-to-day -day life. Whatever that thing is, it is functioning as a false god in your life. It's an idol. And what Jonah would say to us if he were alive today to say it is to whatever it costs, whatever it takes to go to every length necessary to identify the idols at present in our hearts and then do everything that we can to smash those idols because to the degree that we fail to do that, we're going to forfeit the grace of God in our lives. And so what Jonah is doing here is he's looking into his own life and he's getting honest about uh, the depths of his own sin. Uh, but of course, there's another side to that. 
Because if, if all you do is look at the depths of your own sin, then all that's really going to do is crush you under the weight of condemnation. So what we also have to do, and what Jonah shows us, is we need to see the height of God's love. Now you may have noticed this in, in verses that we looked at just a few minutes ago, um, but it, it's, it's, it's noteworthy how many times Jonah continually mentions the temple. Uh, Jonah knew something, and it's really the temple that I think was an, an, an awesome Old Testament concrete reminder that taught this to him. But Jonah knew something that is so vital for you and us to know if we, desire, if we have any desire to grow spiritually. What Jonah knew is that God's grace was anything but cheap. What, what I mean by that is God does not look down from heaven and say, you know, people are going to be people. Uh, I guess my law is pretty demanding, so, you know, just, just, just come on in, don't worry about it. All right. as, as long as a person believes that God's grace is just God sort of dumbing down his standard, they're never going to be transformed by it. God's grace is anything but cheap. And, and the temple that Jonah kept forcefully reminding himself was, of was probably um, the greatest reminder that he had of that in his day. The reason I say that is because in the temple, there was something called the mercy seat. Uh, the mercy seat was essentially the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the specific place, uh, not only that the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled, but it was said that the manifest presence of Yahweh would dwell specifically there, right above the mercy seat. And just underneath the mercy seat, in the Ark of the Covenant, that's where you would find the law, the Ten Commandments. And obviously the Ten Commandments demands that you and I live a life that we know at least a part of our heart knows that we have fallen woefully short of, but over top of that law was the mercy seat where the blood of a sacrifice was sprinkled. And so Jonah keep, kept reminding himself of this temple because what the temple reminded himself of, he, he knew this partially, although he couldn't have the understanding that we have now, seeing what we've seen at Calvary. What the temple taught even people in the Old Testament, is that God will give his people grace despite their failings, but that grace would come at an awful price. Not, not to us, but to the sacrifice, the substitute that, whose blood needed to be spilled. And so Jonah here is not only looking at the depth of his sin, but what he's doing is he's, 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 he's leading his heart in, in his mind in choosing to begin to focus on the substitute. Now Jonah, of course, didn't know what we knew. Jonah would have never guessed that in this chapter of his life that he himself was a picture of the one who would be the substitute that would save the whole world. We've said this every week in the Jonah series so far, that, that, that Jonah was thrown into the ocean of God's anger to save these sailors. One day Jesus would be thrown into the ocean of God's anger to save all who would call on his name. And so the way that you and I grow in grace, the way that you and I uh, continually are transformed by the grace of God as we have to admit the depths of our sin and see the idols that are still at work in our lives. Either by spending a lot of time with God in prayer, uh, spending a lot of time in his word, allowing his word to search us, or, or by spending time with God's people and allowing them to speak into our lives, which can be an absolutely terrifying thing to do, but we need to do that. And then right alongside of that, equally as important as that, we need to also see the height of God's love for us which is nowhere more clearly seen than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we grow in an understanding of both the depths of our sin and the heights of God, the heights of God's love for us personally, grace will continually transform us all throughout our lives. And what this leads us to uh, is, is one final question that's going to serve as the final idea during our time together. 
today. Number three, how do you know that you have this grace that we've been talking about all morning? How do you know that you have it? And frankly, I think there's all kinds of answers to that question, but but what Jonah shows us here in Jonah chapter 2 is that when the grace of God enters into your life, it will transform you in an external way and it will transform you in an internal way. Externally, it will completely transform the way that you view other people. Internally, it will completely transform the inner workings of your heart. And we see both of this in verses 8 and 9. First, in verse 8, we already looked at this. Jonah said, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, this word grace is the Hebrew word kased, uh, which described God's saving love that he gave to Israel. And, and certainly when, when Jonah uttered this prayer, when he said these words, he was thinking about the idols that were at work in his own life. But, but it, it also had to be true that when Jonah said these words, talking about people who cling to idols, forfeiting the grace that could otherwise be theirs, Jonah had to also be thinking about the Ninevites, the, the, literally the polytheistic pagan idol worshipers that prior to this moment in his life, he had absolutely hated to the point that he was willing to run away from God's calling in his life just so they would be destroyed by God's wrath. So this is Jonah saying, even these idol-worshiping Ninevites, these people that I, that I despise, that I hate most, God's grace belongs just as much to them as it belongs to me. And so the point here is that one of the telltale signs that you have really begun to grasp God's grace for you is that you don't look down on anybody else as less deserving of it than you. If you and I choose to go through life believing, if there's, if there's any part of us that believes that we have pulled ourselves up spiritually, that we are self-made people spiritually, that we got our act together, then, then the way that's going to manifest itself every time, even if we can try to hide it from others, we'll know what's going on in our own heart, we'll look down on other people that we think are failures, and we're going to, at, at least in our mind, we're going to say, what is the matter with them? Why can't they get it together? Why can't they do what I've done with my life? But a Christian looks at somebody who has made, a Christian who's really understood the depths of God's grace for them, a Christian looks at somebody who has made an absolute mess of their life, and they're able to say, in truth, they're able to say, apart from Jesus Christ, I must look worse to God than that person looks to me. And if God has been able to do all that he has done and is continuing to do in my life, then there's no telling what God might be able to do in them. So when, when grace begins to take root, first off, it, will, it, it eliminates your cynicism. You'll look at other people with a supernatural kind of hope, believing that God could do, that God could work a miracle in anybody's life just like he's worked one in yours. But what it'll also do is it, it'll eliminate your superiority. It will transform the way that you, that you view others. But the final thing that Jonah shows us, this is the, the, the last thing I want to touch on today, is that, that when grace takes root in your and my life, it will transform us internally. And we see this in verse 9. Jonah said, But I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is a picture of somebody who willingly, willingly has surrendered himself entirely to God. With, a, with, with a, a joy and with a thankfulness is handing over the reins to his life, to his creator. 
And I don't know that there is any more pure marker of a heart that's been transformed by grace than what you're seeing right here. That when you understand the grace that God has extended to you, you hand over every ounce of your life and you hand it over over and over and over again. And it's not about a duty, it's about a desire. It's a heart of thanksgiving that says, why would I hold anything back from a God who loves me the way that this God loves me? This week I I heard a pastor say something and I actually wanted this to be the final thing left ringing in your ears because the moment that I heard this, I thought, how on earth can you have a bad day when when you think about this? He he was talking about this this idea that God is an infinite God, which is a very difficult thing for for you and I to grasp as as finite creatures, at least on this side of eternity. And, And here's what he said. If the stars in the universe which, first off, we have no idea. We don't have a number to, to, to count those stars. I mean, the, the, the best guess that we have is that the universe is expanding, which we just say that because we can't seem to find the end of it, no matter where we look. But if, if the, all the stars in the universe were multiplied by their own number, it would not require any more effort on God's part to light them because God is a God of infinite power. That in and of itself is an amazing thing for me to think about. But with that idea in mind, he made this personal. I don't want to make this personal for you. He said, what that means is that if all of your sins were multiplied, that means everything that you have done wrong, everything that you have failed to do right, everything, every good thing that you've done with impure motives, Every moment of your existence that you have not loved the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself. Every thought, every word, every deed. If every one of your sins was multiplied by, its own, by their own number, he said it would not take any more effort on God's part to cover them because God's grace is an infinite grace. And when you begin to understand that, there, there is no response other than joyful thanksgiving. The, the final thing before I close in prayer that, that Jonah chapter 2 shows us, I mean, look at everything that it took Jonah. Look at everything that Jonah had to go through to get to this place. Uh, he, he had to be in a storm. He had to be thrown into the sea. He had to sink beneath the waves. He need to, needed to spend the night in the belly of the deep, in the, actually in the belly of a fish. I know that was terrifying for Jonah. I know that was terrifying for Jonah. But what this story is showing us is that God is willing to lead you and I through places like that if that's what it takes to open our eyes to the truth and the beauty and the life-changing power of grace. So I'm willing to bet that there's somebody on the other side of the screen right now, you feel a little bit like Jonah, like you've been in a storm, like you've been in the belly of the deep, and it's, and it's cold, and it's dark, and it's painful, and it's terrifying, and you feel isolated. I just... I hope you hold on to the truth that if Jonah were here today, Jonah would say, I hated every part of that chapter of my life. And all, I, I was terrified. It was lonely. It was, all I wanted to do was get through it. But looking back at all that God did in me through there, I wouldn't change a thing. Everything that he led me through was worth it. And I just want to leave you by saying, everything that God leads us through in order to teach us what his grace is like, we're going to know when it's said and done that it was worth it. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, I just want to ask that you would make us a community of people 
that truly understand the depths and the meaning and the beauty and the wonder and the life-changing power of your grace. Because I'm, I'm just convinced, God, that the more that we understand your grace, the more we're going to know exactly what it is that you want us to do with the time that you've given us. God, would you let us be a people who are continually, over and over again, transformed by the life-changing power of your grace. Please make it real through your Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.